I'm Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. Do you find it's particularly appropriate being in Los Angeles as a kind of writer, science fiction? I mean, there's sort of this sense that it could be the apocalypse tomorrow and the weather would still be fine. Yeah, it's fantastic. <laughs> it's, I love LA. I know an old friend of mine was actually just giving the city a ton of crap, but it is just a city where you can do anything, see anything, you know, I don't know. I just think it's phenomenal up here. And, and it does feel like the kind of the, the boundaries between reality and the and, the, and, and other worlds seem particularly it, thin here. It does. It is just like, it, I I know obviously most movies, TV shows get set in LA or New York because that's where film production is. And yet at the same time, every now and then you'll see a supernatural show or something, and it does just kind of make sense. Like you could believe, yeah, I, I believe there could actually be <laughs> demons living in LA. And you and more importantly, you probably wouldn't notice. Yeah, that it just wouldn't. <laughs> what if it? I mean. Fuck, I just dyed my hair blue last night for Halloween for something, and no one has batted an eye. I'm a guy walking around with like denim blue hair, and no one's. You know, I was just, I, I just do. I wanted to be polite. You know? <laughs> in, in, in case you haven't noticed, I'm, I'm sitting having a cup, cup of coffee in Los Angeles with Peter Kleins, who's the author of some of my favorite books, uh, including the most recently released Paradox Bound, uh, Fourteen. Um, and the X Heroes series. Mm-hmm. Peter, thanks for, for coming to hang out. No, no problem at all. Uh, I, it was interesting to see that you, you actually originate from Maine, you know, yes. which, which of course is uh, you share with that other famous writer. Joe Hill. <laughs> <laughs> what is it about Maine? Is, 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 there, is there something in the water there that sort of breeds these dark visions? I don't think so. Uh, Stephen King, of course, for yes. those of you who <laughs> you should know um, better. <laughs> a, a friend of mine uh, made a joke once that really the problem is in Maine, you don't really have anything else to do. Right. Um, it's like Iceland. You, yeah, exactly. It's a, a big surprise what half the people in Iceland claim writer as, a, as some and, form of income. And the other half try to commit suicide. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. I, it had never occurred to me as a kid that I think like most children, I thought my life growing up was just like everybody else's, you know, in this little town in Maine. Um, and honestly, I grew up just as Stephen King was becoming a big thing. So that just struck me as totally normal. That, well, of course, Maine is kind of weird and creepy and all that. And I actually had a, a weird incident then afterwards, which just sort of drove it home, was uh, at this point, I'd been living in California for about 10 years, I think. And I picked up an Aleister Crowley book at the bookstore for like a research thing. I just needed it for some background stuff. And That's what all the kids said. They're just looking yeah, for creepy stuff. Just looking for background. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just reading it for the articles. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I happened to glance at the back, and the publisher was my hometown in Maine. Really? Was listening. So I was kind of freaking out. I happened to, uh, I was online and happened to bump into my uncle on Facebook, my my mom's brother, and I was like, "Hey, did you ever know that like one of the biggest occult publishers in the world is based out of Cape Netic? And he was like, "Oh yeah, I worked for him all the time in high school and all. You didn't know about that?" I'm like. What? And he's like, yeah, we all worked for him. Like, your mom worked for him for a while. And I'm like, what? <laughs> there's, there's, there's that thing in America, isn't it? There's always like this sort of secret history of the occult that's always just sitting under the surface. Yeah, and, and, it's, I, and I, it's everywhere. I, I mean, I, I spent some time in Kansas City, and that's like the spookiest city because <laughs> it feels like a metropolis from a parallel universe, you know, that's sort of now become a bit mothballed. 
That's an interesting way to put it. Yeah, but uh, and 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 this, of course, is is sort of part of the uh, premise of your most recent book, Paradox Bound. Yes, it's sort of the secret history of the United States. Well, I've. Um it actually it, it spun out of something else really weird that I'd actually honestly at this point like six, seven years ago I had reread uh, Neil Gaiman's Neverwhere yeah and loved it of course it's, I, I've read it again and again and again and it struck me as really odd why has no one ever tried to do anything like this with America with the uh, you know this whole idea like you're saying this hidden history that is that is partially hidden but also partially just sitting there in plain sight which is the part that fascinates me that when you have in Neverwhere, and I'd like to think in Paradox Bound, you can have references to phrases, terms, and, and they're real things. And I played around with it for a while. Gr- growing up in New England, I actually went with Boston. And because when you think of North America, Boston's an old city. But really, Boston is like, if you're really generous, Boston is 400 years old, maybe, as compared to London, which is conservatively is a thousand years old. There are a lot of buildings there where they actually just threw acid on the wall to make it actually look older. Yeah. Um, So I kind of tossed the idea aside and I can't remember exactly when I hit it, but then it finally struck me that the the catch is that the American story isn't about that sort of building up and building up for centuries over centuries. It's the driving everyone and expanding as fast as you can. It's the road trip story. And as soon as I hit that, I was suddenly hit with this idea of all these people traveling back and forth across America and through American history, you know, um, with just all the various weird things. And like I said... It's basically a gumball rally. Kind of, yeah. Actually, (laughs) when I pitched it, very first pitched it to my editor, um, he was asking me, so what do you think I'm working on next? I'm like, well, I have this idea, and it's kind of like Neil Gaiman's Neverwhere meets Cannonball Run. (laughs) 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 Um, And he he burst out laughing, just like that, and then said... All right, tell me more, and <laughs> and so yeah, and it was a lot of it was off the whole like you're saying that there's all this weird sort of hidden history in places, you know, finding out that there's a huge occult publisher in your little tiny main hometown that you never knew about, um, and just some of the big blatant weird stuff that's all over the place. Um, one of the things I actually mentioned, which is also in my hometown, and it comes up in the book, is a uh, we have a statue in my little tiny main hometown we have a statue of a Confederate soldier. And it's basically, everyone just calls it the wrong soldier. And the story I always heard growing up was that after the, the Civil War, they were manufacturing all these monuments for you know every town in Wonderland to, to memorialize their fallen soldiers, you know, the people from this town to the left. And at some point, somebody got mixed up and sent the wrong soldier. <laughs> and no one's ever really been able to explain it. The best I've ever heard is some historian who tried to argue that well, no, like that sort of, you know, double-breasted coat and big floppy hat was actually very common dress all over the country at that point in time. And like, not really buying it, you know? It was, it was Halloween. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Halloween during the 1850s. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the, the sort of the basic premise for um, Paradox Bound is that you've got a group of these, in essence, time travelers yes. who are in search of uh, the literal American dream. Yes. Uh, this, this sort of feels quite prescient uh, in 2017, of course. You know, when when so much of what it is to be American is is now in question, in question and in turmoil. It is, and it was actually one of the, the huge issues writing the book. That I I started this book back in. Well, I mean, obviously, I started toying around with it back in 2013, and when I really sat down in 2015 to start working on it, 
you know, I started with this very sort of optimistic, positive view. And then as 2016 rolled on, we had the presidential campaign and all this stuff was going on. And it just felt like every rock in America was being overturned to show its ugly underbelly. And the, the book just changed a lot because there were points when like things that seemed optimistic and positive suddenly just seemed, wow, this seems so stupid and naive now for anyone to say this in America today. Um, and then, you know, I would do a massive rewrite on it and then something else would happen. And it just kept going, kept going. And then we had the election and um, there were points I actually almost, almost just scrapped the whole thing and just said, there's no way this can possibly work anymore. It's hard to create something that's fictional when it actually feels like that reality is a, a parallel universe to start yeah. with. That's just it. It's like when, like, it feels when, like we're living in a dystopia. When, when the book ends up feeling like this should be reality, <laughs> this whole twisted, you know, sci-fi fantasy thing, and yeah, like you said, that that the real world has become so unbelievable. I often wonder that in, in sort of these multiverse setups, whether the citizens of a multiverse start to feel like their underlying base reality is less real than somewhere else. And, and that certainly feels like now. I feel like we are subsidiary characters in, in, in someone else's main plot the, line. The, the joke I keep seeing online is people are going, oh my God, we've definitely gone on to the wrong timeline. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you remember, like, uh, Leonard Cohen died, like, what was it, like three days after the election? Yeah, yeah. And someone said something along the lines of like, my God, we finally created a world too dark for Leonard Cohen to live in. <laughs> <laughs> my favorite explanation is that everything went, basically went sideways when David Bowie died. Right. He, he was some yep. he was some kind of metaphysical angel just like yes. holding the forces of darkness. He was the touchstone veil. of our whole universe. He was <laughs> Roland, you know, protecting the dark tower. <laughs> and 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 that that is uh, you know one of the things that in the book that I found interesting, and I, I think it's actually true of American history in general, is sort of the plasticity of of events. I mean, the whole JFK files have just now emerged, and it just shows you that everything that happens in this country is subject to revisionism or reimagining there are no sort of firm it's guideposts yeah. but i think it is the it's the nature of i guess any limited set of information you know like right now uh there's a there's a historian james burke from england who used to do he did the connection shows and all that and one of the things he brought up in one of his earlier books is, is what we know defines reality and i think we're in a weird point right now where People are willing to are willing to not know things. We don't. There's there's become this sort of God. I hate to say like a fad of being ignorant. Um, you know, there was a long time where like yes, people back in ancient Egyptian times, you know, they actually looked up on the sun and they actually thought the sun was a big fiery ball in a chariot being rolled across or pulled across the sky by scarabs or you know, however no. Theirs was rolled across the sky, I'm confusing with the Greeks. But you get the idea. And this was actually what they believed. And then, you know, we believed for the longest time that the Earth was the center of the universe. And, and everything we did and thought was based around that. But now we've actually hit this point where people don't want to know things. Where if something, if I just don't like the idea of, of the sun not, or the sun being the center of the solar system, I will actually just choose to believe that the Earth is the center. And that's all it is you know and it doesn't matter what you show me what you do that's it and I think we're seeing this now in America that you know lots of us have tried to ignore this aspect of American life that aspect of American life 
and it's getting thrown in our faces and, and both sides of the political spectrum are trying to ignore, you know, well, I just don't want to believe that. You know, it's like, okay, but all the evidence says that. And I, I am, I write goofy fantasy sci-fi stuff, yeah, but I actually try very hard to be a, a fact-based person. You know, not to spew something on the internet until I've gone back and double-checked it and like, is this real? This seems like too crazy to be real or too good to be true. Yeah. No, it's not. Okay. Well, <laughs> but yeah, it's the revisionism, like you said, is interesting because I'm. I find it. There's a fascinating difference, I think, between the revisionism of we have learned something new, right? You know, and so therefore we must go back. And it's not. It. It's not a creative retelling. It's more of a creative forgetting. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. There's the revisionism of, I just don't want to believe that happened anymore. Yeah. And there's revision. But there's, it's the nature of stories that they get augmented over time. Yes. And I think, in a weird way, we're now living through that period where all of our favorites from the past are being, you know, rebooted. <laughs> which, I think, which is part of the process I, of stories becoming mythology. I, I have a feeling that right now we're living in the ugly part of the story where the writer's doing massive rewrites and drafts and <laughs> just deciding what swaths he's going to cut out, he or she is going to cut out altogether. <laughs> it, it was very hard to resist the temptation this morning not to spend the whole day watching Stranger Things. Yeah, you know? I'm, I'm actually... In fact, when you, when you came a little late, I thought, that's it, he's, he's just watching Stranger Things on Netflix. Uh, I've, I've got to be honest, I had not seen it before. I just picked up the box set at Target like three days ago, and my girlfriend and I have been like watching two, three episodes every night now. So we have like, I think we have three left <laughs> of the first season. And then... It, 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 there seems to be this, I wonder whether it's just our generations, you know, just like the baby boomers did with the icons of the 60s, we're kind of, uh, you know, reanimating the classics from our youth. You know, from think, the 80s oh, yeah. and Star Wars but, and... But I think that's that's really what nostalgia is. I had this idea a while back, and I, and I do think it's sort of being shown, that I think every generation sort of looks back like 20, 30 years, and that's the golden age. And if you really think all the way back to like, what was the big thing in the 40s? Cowboy movies, stuff from the turn of the century. And everyone's like, wow, why can't we make cowboy movies anymore? And it's like, because that's just not the thing anymore. We all kind of look back well, at like... Star Wars was our cowboy movie. It was. You know, and that's, and what do you know, that's like getting its big revamp right now. Yeah. I think I think it's really interesting because it does make me wonder, there are a lot of other aspects to it, of course, but is that one of the reasons the prequels didn't work? That it was too soon to revisit Star Wars at that right. point? <laughs> yeah, it was, it was like bringing the 90s back, like at the, exactly. in the late 90s. Yes. You know, that, or did, that is the, the thing that everyone complains about of why are we rebooting this? It just... The movie just came out five years ago and you're rebooting it again already. And but when you have that sort of nice comfortable barrier of well, okay, like, you know, here we are all now, we're all in our forties, fifties, and like looking back and like, you know, when I was twelve, that was peak America right there. <laughs> well this part of the mistake, of course, when you bring these things back is that they can't actually be a sequel. They have to essentially be a retelling because that's what happened with Blade Runner. I mean, yes. the, the new Blade Runner, which I loved, it was made for us. It, yeah. it wasn't made for the, the new generation of viewers. No. But that also then becomes a tricky thing. I think it's, it's something my editor and I have talked about a lot, that any sort of uh, sequel, reboot, whatever, becomes the tricky thing of which audience are we doing it for? Because I can see there are certain industries I look at and I think they've forgotten, rather than aiming at a demographic, they start aiming at a generation. If that makes sense, yeah. That like, yeah, because Star Wars is, a you know, Star Wars is a psychographic. Actually, it's not based on age, <laughs> isn't it? 
Yeah. No, not really. But I'm, I think there's a a catch for if you want to do that, if you want to aim at something at the, the generation, the larger group, or not necessarily a larger group, you have to be careful because once you move into certain categories, like this group isn't going to get bigger. Like if you're just going to market to baby boomers and Generation X, that's awesome. But you also have to understand we're not going to find another 10 million Generation Xers somewhere. You know, this is your audience and it's just going to shrink. That's all it can do. Whereas if you decide we're aiming at a demographic that we always want to get the, I don't know, 18 to 30 group or whatever, well, that's a group that's always going to be there and is always going to expand, most likely, hopefully, <laughs> depending on how things go again. Um, so I think that is sort of the danger, like you're saying, if you take a movie and you say, well, I'm just going to make it for the people back then, well, ugly truth is a, a lot of the people who saw the first Blade Runner are dead. You know? <laughs> yeah. So... One of the things that I really loved about um, your, I guess your non-ex-heroes novels was, mm-hmm. was some of the, the interconnections between them, like between 14 and The Fold. Mm-hmm. There was a, they weren't really connected directly, but there was a sense that they occupied a similar space Yes, uh, I, in the time continuum. I've, I've become a, a big fan of, I was leaning more towards a serious thing, and again, speaking with my editor, I've kind of come, it's actually funny you mentioned earlier, the Dark Tower idea. Yeah. That if you are a big Stephen King fan, there's obviously the Dark Tower, the set of seven, arguably eight books, which is a series, no question. But in the greater sense, like, almost every one of Stephen King's books ties into the Dark it's Tower. It's actually chilling when you look at some of those links. Oh, yeah. But because you, you actually, I mean, you actually wonder how or why he, he, he built that so deep into the structure. Well, I do... As a creative person, having, having through the film industry, been part of the creative process for so long, one way or another, I do also wonder, I'd, I'd never like call him on this, challenge him openly, but I wonder how much of it was planned that way. How much of it was him throwing in a fun nod, a little wink here and there. Like, I remember I was in... It almost co- feels subconscious, though. That's, that's My, the creepy part of it. Well, it probably is like there was a point it was almost subconscious, and then there's another point where it becomes... Um, like, okay, you can't help but notice it now. So I'm right. not sure it is deliberate, and it's a little bit of fan service and all that. Um, I remember in two of my books, actually, someone noticed I had reused a name. And everyone became <laughs> convinced this obviously showed yeah. this was some connection between these two people. And I was like, oh, I hadn't planned it that way, but it does kind of work, I guess. It, <laughs> I'm not against it. And... Um, you know, I look at Stephen King and I think, I remember, I think I was like 19 or 20, and I noticed the connection between The Stand and Eyes of the Dragon. Yeah. Which, I, I won't blow it for anyone if you haven't read it, but um, there are direct character connections. Between and they're, they're totally books. different genre books. They're ridiculously different. It's like a young adult fantasy novel and an incredibly bleak dystopian, you know, what? Lord of the Flies type. Kind of, yeah. yeah. Apocalyptic novel, virus apocalypse. Um, and yet... There are unquestionable definite threads between them and threads which eventually led into the Dark Tower. Yeah. Um, well, the Dark Tower itself, it's got this this epic feeling a bit like, I mean, essentially it's the world tree that you see yes, in Norse mythology exactly. and things like that. So it's a it's one of the deepest story structures that we've had since, since the beginning of time. Yeah. But I think we've always, I mean, and again, the idea of heaven and hell is nothing new. And then once you sort of get that and you just start thinking of other worlds, I mean, again, the Norse, the... I, I won't embarrass myself trying to pronounce the name of the tree. 
Yeah, it's like it's like yggdrasil. Yggdrasil or something. Yeah, there's there's like four consonants in a row. Y G G D R. Yeah. But um, but right there, the whole idea of that there's the inner world and the outer world and heaven and hell and all this sort of stuff, and I don't know. I I think that does just appeal to us on some level. The idea that there could be different worlds within just as well or sort of existing in the same play I mean you brought up Stranger Things um, obviously my own writing Stephen King's writing The Dark Tower there's just something appealing about the idea and I think part of it is the the branching realities idea that we all love the idea of what if I could jump over to the world where I, I did just dump college and drive cross country that time or what if I stayed in college or what if I married him or her or them or, you know, all these different things. And I think that appeals very deeply to us. The idea of that, A, we could have done something else. Um, because I think that's that's a very freeing idea, knowing you had the option. Yeah. But then also the idea of what would it have been like, that getting to get a quick glimpse of that other life, that other and world. And it just feels that now science is trolling us, you know, with, with quantum yes, computing, isn't it? Exactly. I, I <laughs> love, when I was doing The Fold and reading up on quantum mechanics and all this stuff, it was just fascinating reading, I don't know, some of the, the different theories, the ideas. It basically feels like Philip K. Dick thought this whole idea yes. up. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of it. It's like somebody has hit the point where this really does feel like, you guys are just pulling this out of movies, aren't yeah, you? Yeah. you know? <laughs> I love how you use DARPA as, as, as just this kind of repository for something creepy and scientific. Yes. <laughs> I, 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 when I first heard about DARPA, uh, way back when I thought this is just crazy that like we're, we're openly admitting the US government spends money on all sorts of crazy stuff <laughs> and it's it's kind of exciting in a way to think that like at some level there are enough people who think like you know what try and make warp drive here's a couple million dollars see what you can do yeah. and it's also just kind of scary when you think of like if these are the things they're publicly admitting that we're funding what other kind of like fringe have we already figured out no there's actually a room on Liberty Island where you can just cross over to another universe but we're keeping it secret yeah <laughs> we, 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 we couldn't get the economics to work yeah you know <laughs> oh no we've been in contact with aliens since the 40s we've been <laughs> what how much have you have you I guess mapped out this common universe a little bit um, are we going to see some more yeah that's actually that's my editor and agent and I are talking about that right like literally right now, we were, we were trading emails yesterday and are probably gonna trade more later today. Um, the the catch is like a lot of it had never really been planned that way hmm. as a, a multiverse sort of story. Um, I had originally, my the first book I guess in this sort of universe 14, I had just written as sort of a standalone. And it was very much more of a weird horror creepy novel that grew out of actually you know a little bit of my experiences when I first lived in LA um, and then when I went to the was actually the fold is actually based off a short story I wrote in college for a class this is the, the Albuquerque door right yes exactly yeah. okay so you've done your research <laughs> um, yeah I did that um, my teacher hated it thought it was garbage um, and I revisited a while back and realized there's actually I guess space in this um, I remember I was coming home from a Christmas party at a friend's house and it suddenly struck me you know there's like room in here where this could make a really interesting sort of side quill 
to 14 and more of like a shared universe thing. And, and at one point in an earlier draft, it was much more of a sequel. Um, but my editor actually pointed out like a couple issues that would come up with that. And I actually agree with them. I'm very lucky that I have a, a very good, well-spoken editor who, who is much better than... I, I have friends who talk about editors who are like, this doesn't work, fix it. And my editor is really great that he's really good at spotting problems and openly admits really bad at suggesting solutions. <laughs> so <laughs> that he can, he can say, eh, this isn't really working. And we can kind of bat stuff back and forth, um, which will usually end with like the two of us on the phone and be like, well, this is like, oh, oh, wait, okay, I'm gonna call you back in like two hours. <laughs> Click it. <laughs> how, how important is, is technology in, in, in the way you explore, I guess, some of these multiverses? Because I mean, one of the things in both particularly in 14, I think, was that there was sort of this this hint towards a kind of a, a different parallel path of technology, kind of a more steampunk, Valve-based, etheric. <laughs> I, I love the idea of steampunk. I, I love, let me guess, the aesthetic and of steampunk. And it's similar in Paradox Bound, right? Yes. There's a very steampunk aesthetic yes. running through there. Um, but I'm actually, I, what I really like is the idea of, I guess the idea behind steampunk, that there is more than one way to solve a problem. That there is, like you say, the, the steampunk aesthetic to both of these, but they're also doing the exact same thing that in the fold we have this multi-million dollar DARPA lab, right. which is doing stuff with all this, these cutting-edge plastics and computers and all this, and giant electromagnets and all. Um, and I kind of like that. I like the, the idea that you can have the same technology at different levels. I think visually... And presumably there could have been a couple of occultists in Maine using Alistair Crowley codexes to do the same thing, right? <laughs> yeah, but that's it. I um, I loved... I know this is kind of a goofy reference, but in the Marvel, the Marvel Cinematic movies, I think they've done an amazing job of bringing magic with Thor and Doctor Strange and all this into the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which had been so very hard science-based, and yet still making it feel like a form of science. Right. That this is, again, we're not doing anything that anyone isn't doing today with particle colliders and all this, but... It's the, 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 the kind of the laws of the universe are being obeyed, but summoned in different ways. Exactly. Yes, that we're all, we're all manipulating, using, bending, breaking the same laws. We're just doing it in different ways. Uh, that's part of what excites me most, I think, about some of the big breakthroughs right now in, you know, in computation, in... Uh, digital biology is that it's it's all essentially code and algorithms like you know we're breaking all the rules yes. but we're doing it in a consistent way yes and finding out like I remember there was a, a wonderful moment I had in college when I actually took a whole course on relativity and one of the things that amazed me was at one point there's this fascinating phenomena where if you have a cube that is facing you and move it sideways at a fraction of the speed of light what actions are happening is the face of the cube gets out of the way of the side of the cube. So you actually see a rotated cube because the, the speed of light movement is shortening the cube. Right. And because it's actually getting out of the way of the photons that are coming off this edge, you're seeing the side of the cube. So the effect you get is you see the cube like this. And what amazed me was, as the professor was sort of walking us through this, slowly, 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 it turned out there's an exact tie to trigonometry here, that the fraction of the speed of light you're moving 
is the exact is this relates to the and I'm, and I'm gonna blow it now because it's been like 20 something years but the sign of the angle that you are seeing the cube at and I was like holy crap this is like it's all connected like yeah. this makes total sense that these numbers and those numbers and this math and that math and I just think it's amazing that we keep finding that as we go deeper into genetics, it's as we go super, deeper into math. Super deep symmetry to all that. Yeah, it, it is the it's the grand unified theory taken one step further. That oh, by the way, did we mention that physics, you know, nuclear physics and gene mapping is at the core of the same thing? Yeah. You know that, which I don't know if they are, but <laughs> um, but you know that we just keep finding more and more connections between things, and I think that's amazing. I love that the idea that. And again, going back to the Doctor Strange thing, the, the magic idea that and once you know these things, it becomes easier to work with them, manipulate them and all. We, it, it, across cultures, we, we, we have these same stories of change and transformation of zombies, of vampires. <laughs> it, it's just amazing that this, you know, it, this is almost hardwired into our apprehension of reality. Yes. I love, I love very early on, uh, it was actually an H.P. Lovecraft story, and I remember learning. So there must have been tentacles. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, there wasn't. This was actually one of those weird things, and I'm not even sure. He was kind of well-read, so he probably knew this. Lovecraft had a reference to the star Algol in it, and what I discovered after that, it was like sort of half mentioned in the story, and then I looked it up. Every single civilization on Earth has given that star an evil name. Really? If you look back at every mythology from the Chinese, the Native Americans, does the Greeks, red the hue? Romans, does it have a red hue? It's a faintly pulsing star right. from where it is. But everybody looked up and said, whoa, that's evil. And so all its names, I mean, its name, Algol, is actually from Arabic, Algul, the ghoul. It's like, it's the ghoul star. That's what we call it today. And uh, the Chinese name for it works out to like piled up corpse heads. Like everybody looked up at this one star and said, "My God, this is yeah." <laughs> and I think it's fascinating when you have that. They everybody has the story of the thing that comes back from the dead and steals your life. Everybody has the story of you know ghosts, the dead re-rising. Everyone has stories of, of the chosen one and the hero. Of the chosen one and the hero. Gilgamesh. Every, everyone has stories of you know people who turn into animals. You know, it's it is fascinating how these same ideas crop up again and again and again over it all and it, and it does it's easy to see why people would come to believe you know or use for story fodder that there must be something behind this that it just shows you if you reboot something enough it becomes mythology yeah <laughs> what is it you, you go from stories to folklore to mythology and then legends I guess <laughs> then reruns and then reruns <laughs> Peter it's, uh, it's been great to have you on the show um, I'm a big fan um, thank you so much everyone who's listening to this should immediately read all of Peter's books um, thank you very much no problem thank you you've been listening to Between Worlds for more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash between worlds.